That is a powerful reading of that text, isn't it? To take it and put it in the middle of this story that Jesus meets with his disciples when they're afraid and locked behind closed doors. What it means is that the world is changing and it's changing very fast. That's always been true, but it's changing faster today and the changes are more disruptive. When they come, it feels like they're gonna be here for a while. And Psalm 46 is this beautiful picture of two worlds. One, where everything is changing. The mountains are crumbling and the seas are in an uproar. And if you remember that in the ancient mindset, the mountains were like pillars that upheld the sky and they anchored the oceans. And so when the mountains were quaking and the oceans were in an uproar, in the ancient mind, literally everything they knew that was stable and set was moving. But against that, there is this beautiful community, this city where the Most High dwells. And because God is in that city with those people, they will not be destroyed. Well, as I said, it feels like everything is changing in our world right now. And that's always been true. But what's more so is that the things that we've once turned to to stabilize us during change are themselves changing. The government is in an uproar. We don't know where it's going to go. The parties seem farther apart. We don't know if a third one will emerge. There's been more executive orders in the last three presidential regimes than in years in this country. And it just feels like the leadership is in an uproar. But that's okay because historically, at least when that's been true, we've been able to rely on the family and the church as like pillars. We can retreat to the family and the church. The trouble is that the family and the church are also in an uproar. Family is being redefined and rediscovered by our country today. The fastest growing demographic in family arrangements is no longer single parents. That was true 20 years ago. Today, it's grandparents who are raising their children, some of them as single grandparents, but you can feel kind of the ground under the American family starting to move. And that's all right, because we could always then run to the church, and that stayed the same. I mean, heaven knows churches never change. But it feels like churches today are also in an uproar. Some of them have been taken over by agendas that are not spiritual. They're political agendas. Some are more social agendas. And people are finding that this place where I once went for, for, for stability is moving. In education, things are moving. Those that are teaching the lower grades have spent the last year or part of it online. Your classes have been a hybrid of in-person and online. And if you're in higher education, heaven only knows where that's going to go in the next five to 15 years. It feels in higher ed like things are moving and nobody has yet discovered what the next version of that's going to be, but almost everyone knows there will be significant changes. Even in the markets, everything is changing. The rise of a crypto 
currency is starting to challenge the traditional markets and people are starting to wonder, am I ever gonna be able to retire? Will there ever be enough? So here's what I'm saying. Things are moving and the movements are more disruptive today than they've been in times past. And it gives one this kind of overall sense of uneasiness and worry. When you add to that the changes in your own family, in your own life, you start to feel like everything is in tumult. But there is a place where the Most High dwells. And when God is in that place with those people, they will not be moved. But how do you know God is in this place? Do we just get together and think about him? If so, he's a thought, not a person. How do you know that God is physically, tangibly, I mean, present when people are in that place? We've used Luke 24 for the last few weeks to say that in different ways after the resurrection, in a lot of ways, Everything changes after the resurrection. Seeing doesn't mean what it meant after the resurrection. And so we've said, when the people of God are in the company of good companions, having good conversations, Christ is present in that company of people. Yes, we need better companions and we need better conversations, but when we have them, Christ is physically, you can hear him coming through the voice of the people in those circles. And we've said when the scriptures are opened and when they are illumined by the Holy Spirit and by the people of God, they come alive and you can hear the voice of Jesus coming out through the scripture. It's like your na- everything but your name is being said. Today, I want to give you one more component, and it's the table. Christ is present in the table. For when he broke the bread, their eyes are open, and they recognize him. And in that moment, he vanishes from their sight. All we know about the two on the road to Emmaus, I'm not going to go all the way over there, relax. too many steps these days. All we know is that the disciples are still in Jerusalem behind locked doors because of the Jews and the Romans. They're afraid. The world is not safe. Two of them have decided that they've had enough. They've left that company of disciples behind locked doors, and they've decided to go back now home, which is seven miles away in Emmaus. While they are on the road, he joins them. We don't know whether they're disappointed, whether they're angry, whether they're frustrated, and we don't know if they're ever coming back. But they seem to me, you guys, an awful lot like the largest growing demographic in the Christian church 
in America today, what some have called the Duns. These are not people that have no religious affiliation. These are people that used to have a religious affiliation, but they've left their churches for two reasons, a loss of relevance and a loss of trust. These are not bad people, and we don't know if they're gone for long, but they're gone for now. And as I say, so many of them are leaving that they now fill the largest demographic in the Christian church in America. They're disappointed. They're frustrated. These are our sons and daughters. We taught them. These are not unchurched people. These are once churched people. But they came up in our churches and suddenly there was a disconnect. When Josh Packard did more than 100 interviews and collected his data in more than a 1,000 pages of transcript, he distilled it like this. They came looking for a conversation, but all they got was sermons. They wanted to be part of something that was changing the world, and all they got was bureaucracy moral prescriptions. So they're not angry. They don't disbelieve in God. They just don't see anything relevant or trustworthy about the assembly in Jerusalem. We don't know why we should be here anymore because everything has changed. So maybe I'm taking liberties, but the two seem an awful lot alike to me. And it's significant that in their journey home, away from the assembly, Jesus meets them where they are, not where they should be. And he has a conversation. He wants to know what these words are that they're throwing back and forth. And they're shocked. They can't believe he doesn't know until he starts talking. And then they discover maybe he knows more than we thought he did. The way he starts talking about the scriptures is in a way that they've never heard before. There's an authority. He seems to see the whole thing at one time. And you, you're just stuck in one scene and you keep replaying it, and you can't get out of that one scene, but not him. He sees the whole thing, and he's able to take this little scene that you're stuck in and put it into the hole. And pretty soon, it occurs to you, this is not just an optimist putting a good spin on the same events. This is a man that sees the world fundamentally different. In fact, he starts to put things together like we've never heard before. He can not only account for the things we can account for, he can make things, sense of the things we can't account for. They all fit when he talks. Well, by this time, you're almost to your home in Emmaus. He acts like he's going to go further. So you tell him to stay. He comes into your home and he sits at the table. 
after you get everything ready. This moment where Jesus sits at the table with two disciples is a significant moment. Allow me to take a rabbit trail. Can I do that and tell you why? This is either the seventh meal or the ninth meal in the book of Luke alone, depending on how you count them. But if you were to put all seven or nine meals so far in front of you, you would notice a pattern. First, Jesus does a lot of eating. Second, when Jesus is at the table in Luke, there is always somebody at it who shouldn't be there. What I mean is there are people you can eat with and people you can't. We have the same protocol in our country today. If somebody sees you eating with a certain kind of person, it sends off signals. Are you with me? Okay, that person is always present whenever Jesus is at the table. And because this is true, somebody always gets upset. Sometimes they protest. They tell them that that person shouldn't be there. And sometimes they refuse to come themselves. But there always seems to be drama at Jesus's meals. Because the boundary lines between who's in and who's out is moving. There are still insiders and outsiders but the way he serves these meals, some of the outsiders are in and some of the insiders are out. And so you look at Jesus' dinners and you say, we don't know where the boundaries are. Then you discover he's redrawing them. And that's the last thing. Every time he's at a table with somebody, He's not only redrawing the boundaries. So the people you thought were in are sometimes out. And some of the people you thought were out are sometimes in. He is now bonding with this new group of people, some of whom shouldn't be there in a meal. He is forming, in a way, a new family a new community, a new Israel. And that's odd because when you got up and left Jerusalem to head to your home in Emmaus, you thought you'd never see him again. Now he follows you <laughs> to the place where you're running and shows up at your table but you don't know it's him. So you spread the table, you bow your heads, you pray the Shema like you always do, and then you get ready to eat. And he grabs the bread and he blesses it again. And you look at him and you go, hey, we just did. Holy cow. That's not in there. I just added that. But if I'm reading it right in the, in the original language, all of this stuff happens at the same time. 
while he breaks the bread, your eyes are opened. And even as your eyes are opening, here's the original again, he becomes disappearing. This is significant. He doesn't stand up and walk out. He is sitting at your table and at the same time your eyes are opening, he is slowly leaving this dimension for another one. There is something metaphysical happening here. You start to wonder, what is this present, absent, visible, invisible, oh, visible again, nope, invisible, nope, visible again. What is this back and forth? The second you see him, he disappears. And when you're sure he's gone, he appears. You start to wonder, is all of this back and forth between the visible and the invisible really a way to train us to know that even when it seems he is gone, he's still present? You just don't know it. <laughs> so you start retracing the steps. You start saying, oh my goodness. Did this whole thing start like seven miles ago? When he joined us on the road and remember when he started dropping the scriptures? Remember how he put them together? How our hearts caught on fire? Now at the table when he does the same thing we've seen him do before. But there's only one thing you can do. You get up and without being asked, <laughs> you turn around and you run now back to Jerusalem. He never said you should go back. You knew that instinctively. And why? Because even though you're frustrated and tired and you need a break from all of this religion, those are still your people and you know it. So this one doesn't take you two and a half hours because <laughs> you're on a dead run. Let's say you're in shape. And when you arrive in Jerusalem, the disciples are at another table. They're eating. The reason we know this, at least I think we know it, is because twice in the book of Acts and once in the book of Mark, it refers to the 11 apostles being at the table with Jesus after the resurrection. If you like addresses, one is in Acts chapter 1 verse 4. The other address is in Acts chapter 10 verse 41. The apostles say they ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And Mark 16, 14 said he appeared to the 11 apostles when they were together at the table. If they are not referring to this moment, then we don't know what moment they're referring to. My guess is when the disciples from Emmaus run back to Jerusalem, they're also at a meal. And this one is alive with energy. 
The moment you get in the door, they start telling you how Jesus had also appeared to some of them. He's even appeared to Simon Peter. And the odd thing is, you thought he was with you the last two and a half hours from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Now you're in Jerusalem hearing how he has also appeared to some of them. And they have stories. And these stories are different. So you came back to the assembly, to the community in Jerusalem to tell them your story. And what you discovered is that they all have one too. This is crazy. But it's also kind of instructive, you guys, because this isn't church where somebody has a story, somebody had an encounter with Jesus, and so he's the preacher. This is a community of people, some of whom have run into him. And when they get together, the conversation is alive with their experiences. Henry Nouwen said somewhere that community is where solitude meets solitude. In other words, if the people that gather in community have not had solitude before they got there, they will only be able to live off of the energy that the community creates. They'll not have their own. But when the people of God have encountered him along the way, they have stories to tell that are different. And when you put them together, it is a powerful expression of Jesus's presence. Sure enough, in the middle of this conversation, he appears again. That is not an accident. Where the people have met him on the road and they're sharing their experiences, in the middle of that witness and that celebration, Jesus appears again. And he asks if you have anything to eat. <laughs> you got a table full. So you hand him a piece of fish and he eats it. And he tells you, if I was a ghost, I wouldn't, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. Suddenly, you start to wonder. There are two tables, not one. There was one in Emmaus. There's another one seven miles away in Jerusalem. This one has two people at it. Neither of them are apostles. But the big one has all 11 apostles at it and others besides. If we use the numbers from Acts chapter 1, this one could have been up to 120. This one 
he sat at your table, broke the bread, so far as we know, never ate it, and then vanished in the middle of the meal. But this one, you give him something to eat, and he eats it in front of you, and he stays. The one in Emmaus ends in a gathering in Jerusalem. But the one in Jerusalem ends in ascending out into the world. And you start to put it together. Maybe this trip on the road to Emmaus was not a casual stroll with a stranger talking about theological topics. Maybe it was a search and rescue. Maybe he knew we were leaving and he came after us. And maybe he found us in our remote little village at our tiny little table. (laughs) And he condescended one more time to do with just us what he had all along done with the rest. You start to wonder if when he was sitting at your table, he was inviting you, really summoning you to the other one. (laughs) Because while your eyes are opened at your table, he appears in his fullness at the main one. You start thinking, as long as it takes people in the Eastern ancient culture to eat, ours, I mean, they didn't have microwaves. You start to wonder if the disciples in Jerusalem were sitting down to eat about the same time that your eyes were opened. Maybe this is one table. Here's where I'm going with that. I think there's people here like the Duns on the road to Emmaus. I think you're tired. I think in your mind, the church has been taken over by agendas. This is not what you signed up for. Some of you are in the room, so you're still here, but there's a lot more of you that are online and you're watching from a distance. And you're not sure how much of this matters anymore. In the last year, we've started to wonder, what does it mean to gather? Can one in fact gather in smaller little communities back home? And so that's what we've done. And we've gotten really good at projecting the service to people in remote Emmaus-like villages. And now we're wondering whether we were too good, whether some of them will ever want to come back. In fact, now that COVID feels almost over, the naked truth is that most of us have already found our real community. We're already back 
with people we really wanted to be with. And sometimes we're still not in the big assembly. So you start to wonder, who are our people? Were they ever our people? As real as Christ has seemed to you and was in your remote places, he is more full in the assembly. Maybe if you're online, you can't come back now. It's too early for you. Everyone at their own speed. But if you're thinking that you have a choice to make, do I worship with the assembly or do I worship in Emmaus? Maybe that isn't your choice. Maybe you don't get to decide that. Maybe Americans, whether we like it or not, don't get to decide everything about our religion. Maybe it's not ours. We belong to it, but we can't control it. Maybe God is summoning you eventually to belong to the community again. Mm. <laughs> it's crickets in here. It doesn't end here. As I said, it ends out there right when we settle down and we're having this big meal with Jesus. This one, there's no tension at all, just celebration. We say, why don't we just build three shelters and live here forever? And what he says to us is that he is releasing us into the world. Only he's opening our minds so we can understand the scriptures. And he's telling us that when we go out into the world, we will carry the gospel of repentance and forgiveness in his name. And then he says, you will be clothed with power from on high. You'll be able to do things you can't do. And let me tell you why, people, that is important. Because if 120 people were in that room, less than 10% of them are what we would call clergy. More than 90% of them are what we would call, though I hate the name, laity. And they are being released around the world. But they're not just being sent to go have good bill-paying jobs. They are being released as ambassadors of Jesus Christ into places that have never heard his name, and their mind has been opened to the scriptures, and they are 
fearless about their belief in the gospel and they have a wind to their back that is the Holy Spirit. And you start to see why the church is so necessary in a day of nonprofit organizations because our authority is different. The scripture is our mind. Our message is different. It is repentance and forgiveness in his name. And our power is different. We can do things that we cannot do because God's spirit is upon us. This is what sets us apart. Not that we have good private lives, but that we take what has happened when we were together and we release it into every discipline in this room. And that's how the world got changed and still will be changed. And so he said in Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go and make disciples in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have taught you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he said in Mark, go and preach the gospel to all creation. And so they went, said Mark, and they preached the gospel everywhere, and the Lord worked miraculous signs among them. And so he said in John, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And then he breathed on us and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And he said in Acts, it is not up to you to know the times. You can't know what's going to happen. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria. Oh my goodness, you'll go all over the world. I will do it, church. He says, I will do it, but you must go. This morning, as the service is released, I hope you won't feel that it's over. I hope you just don't go back and live another individual life. I hope you will take the energy, the gospel, and the message of this place and release it in a thousand different places who need it far more than the people in this room. Would you pray with me? Father, we have heard your word, and now we feel your wind, your push, your calling upon our lives. Whoever we are and whatever it is we say we can't do, call us and release us into the world that you love as much as you love us. In the name of Jesus, 